how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Christine Lunas describes herself as a very, very bookish child. Soon she started writing 20-page letters to friends. And they were so long, her grandfather said, I think you're going to be a writer one day. While living in Paris, she started writing comedy and drama scripts as plays. After some frustrations due to major changes in the work, she decided to give up her contract and focus on novels. She's now known for Primordial Soup, A Can of Sunshine, and Caging Skies, which was just recently adapted into a film called Jojo Rabbit. In this interview, Lunas describes her no safety net approach to writing, where she got the idea for Caging Skies, what's at the heart of Jojo Rabbit, the film, how every novel is different, and why writers need to cut their work for the big picture. If you enjoyed this interview, look for the print version on Creative Screenwriting's website and join thousands of viewers for the new YouTube series, Creative Principles, which dissects new films, series, and more. I was very, very bookish as a child. So um, I was reading quite young. There used to be articles, you know, in the local newspaper of how many books I used to check out and read. So I think that was pretty much the background, how I guess I felt that often by reading, I felt close to writers somehow. And sometimes if I really engaged with their work or the way they thought or their philosophy, I felt they would become friends. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit odd. Of course, I had normal friends. but um, And then just as I got older, um, when I was a young adult, I used to write such long letters to people that my grandfather one day said, uh, I think you're going to be a writer one day. <laughs> you know, I used to write 20-page letters. And then it just happened. Uh, I began to write. Uh, and... And, and then that just felt, I guess, very right to me when I began to, because I think what moves me so much about writing is often people engage with others from the outside. So it's what you see or appearance or something. And what I liked about the writing is I felt it's the world of thought. It's the world of interior emotions. I felt writing gets the closest I ever could to who I really am or when I'm describing a character who they really are. I found it brought me the closest um, in that way. What were some of the books that really stood out to you? When did you kind of start, in addition to the family support, when did you start to see that as a possibility as a career in, in terms of writing fiction and that kind of thing? So I was in Paris, and I was... Um, I began to write the first thing was just a little bit of a play, and someone had seen it, and they said, oh, that should be a film. So I'd say my early training was when I was getting my first um, jobs as a script writer. So I was writing, um, you know, I'd, I'd write 
comedy or dramedy and things like that. So I think that was my training ground. But because it was a collective art and sometimes people well, often would have some say and the producer would say, change it this way, or the director would say, change it this way. At some stage, I became very frustrated because I felt that I had written something um, that I felt proud of and that instead of going, you know, I don't mind to change things when I believe it's for the better. It's very hard to change something and to feel it's going down and that I actually wouldn't even want to see it happen that way. So, um, although I was, I had, you know, contracts and things. So I did something now I look back at and I think that's a bit insane. I actually left the security of these contracts and I said, okay, I'm going to take a couple of years off and write a book. And of course there was no funding and it was an act of faith because I didn't know at the end of it, would it be published? But it seemed so meaningful for me at that time to get the story that I wanted to and then to just have no one interfere, that that's why I switched over and then stayed with the the, the form of the novel. And I've never regretted looking back, though now that I'm older, I do think I did take quite a quite a risk back in those days. You definitely got a, it sounds like a passion for the for the work. Did you find yourself in areas of writer's block or how did you kind of structure your day to write that first novel? What I would do is I would just um, get up and I would write from probably just after breakfast, and then I'd write till, you know, about dinner time, um, which is late in Europe at the time. So I would have very long days. I was living alone at the time, so sometimes I would even, you know, write on a Saturday. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just had, I was very disciplined. Uh, every day I tried to get, you know, through the first draft, and then... I'd read what I did, and then I understood that, you know, I'd have to go to a second draft and, you know, start. Because people often say writer, but the truth is when you're a writer, you're a little bit of, it should more um, rightly be called a rewriter, because you, you rewrite a lot. So, uh, you know, I, I went through that process, and it takes a lot of persistence to get it, you know, through several drafts to finally you say, okay, when when you're to the point at the end, you say, okay, this sounds like it should, you know, there's, I'm happy with every sentence from beginning to end. I'm, I'm just touching up on commas now. Okay, it's ready to send in. So where did you originally get the idea for Caging Skies, which is now the film Jojo Rabbit? Okay, so the idea actually, there was a true life situation. I was um, friends with an elderly French woman and her parents had hidden a Jewish man during the war um, for years. And she fell in love with him, and after the war, they were married. Um, the parents didn't improve of the match, sadly. Um, but when she told me of this story, he had already long passed away. I thought that was just a very powerful, moving story. I couldn't get that out of my mind, but I didn't want to do that story. I knew I needed something else to really make me feel that I had the material to go forward. For, um, and then I realized I'm going to switch it around and I'm going to make it a Jewish woman, young woman who's the one hiding in the attic. And the one who's going to discover her is actually going to be a Hitler youth, um, a member of the Hitler youth. And then 
that brought it all together because that allowed me to explore everything that was happening in his life, how he even became a Hitler youth. How did that happen? You know, starting off as an ordinary boy who's eight years old and just riding his bicycle and flying kites in the vineyard. How did suddenly he learn to become what he had become? And how would then meeting Elsa change his whole perspective little by little of what he'd been taught? You know, when, um, when he actually met a real human being, that the embodiment of what he had been taught would be an absolute monster and the incarnation of evil. There's a lot of heavy themes um, in, in the story. Did you begin with an outlining phase? Did you, did you discover some things as you went along? Like, what's your research like versus your writing phase? Okay, so this one, the first novel I wrote, I just wrote. Um, I didn't know where I was going. I just started it, and then the scenes kept coming. This one I couldn't do that one with because what I wanted to do was very carefully entwine the um, story, what's happening to the characters with actual moments in history. So Kristallnacht, um, the book burning, you know, the, the knives in the Hitler Youth, when Hitler Youth became compulsory. And before Hitler Youth, there was even something called the Jungen. Um, uh, so what I did is I made the history, and then I um, had the plot follow along with the history of what's happening, when, there was the, when they were winning the war, when they started losing the war, the occupation. So I, I did do an outline, and I did what was happening historically and which moments could fit into that um, outline. And somehow that seemed, interestingly, that seemed to give a lot of layers and depth to the story to have something that's happening because something's happening on the collective scale and something's happening on the individual scale. And I found that gave a lot of power to the story. So I just kept with that. Did that kind of make you reshape the way you write now? Do you, or, do, or is every story different where some you, you know, write one page at a time, some you outline? How did that kind of change your overall writing habits? Okay, well, I'm almost finished now with my fourth novel, and that was amazing to me. What I didn't know was that every novel's a bit different. So the first, the process of the first wasn't the same as with the second one, and the third one, that also was different. But interestingly, the new one that I've um, just about finished, it's also a historical novel um, that takes around, you know, the, the Rainbow Warrior bombing. So... Um, and that one had the same, it's the first time I had the same process, which was like Caging Sky. So I had everything that was happening historically, um, and then I had the, the themes, the characters, and how I was going to work that into it. So it's the first time two books felt like it was the same process. Uh, for our listeners that have maybe just seen the trailer for Jojo Rabbit or getting ready to see the film, how close is, is the tone and things like that in the story to the original novel that you wrote? I'd say that um, Taika and I belong to the same artistic family, but he's he's comedy where he so he has humor and he leans towards drama. I lean more towards drama with a touch of um, comedy. So we meet in the middle. You know, if you would have this as a radio frequency, he would be to one side of the frequency. You know, the little line, and I'm to the other. But there's a part where we meet in the middle. So I'd say it's like that. So his film is, my, my book has elements of comedy too, but his film brings definitely probably more comedy than my book, which is darker. However, I'd say that even during the moments of comedy, 
there is a sadness and a poignancy in his film because um, as you're seeing it, you, you're always mindful of what's happening. Um, so you feel what's ha- happening behind, you know, what, what, what is the real situation? So you might laugh at something, but you're always aware that actually Elsa, what's her real situation hiding in an attic, you know, for years? What's his situation as a Hitler youth? What's his mother's situation trying to navigate the world uh, of keeping her little boy human when he's become indoctrinated? So though it, on the surface it's funny, beneath the surface it's not funny. He does find that depth and um, and putting in a little bit of joy too and uh, and a note of hope it's not just incredibly sad but there are there is real sadness in it also the the film so those moments you laugh but there are also moments you cry put it that way and in my book there's moments um, it goes it carries on longer the book of course than the film because the the book is just uh, uh, so many pages you couldn't fit you know everything into the film so tonally yes that's how i would say it's it's different but it's still the same themes the same plot the same emotional essence the same message could i say that comes across it's just been um put into another medium in a way that it's still compelling and engaging for an audience when you originally had this idea, what was kind of your summary? Like, how did you go about pitching this book to your to your agents or publicists and those type of people? Okay, so I didn't pitch this one um, to anyone, actually, which is really crazy when I think about it because it took five years to write. So basically I'm putting five years to my life, you know, in a kind of faith that after um, someone's going to take it. And in fact, the publisher of my first novel didn't take it and didn't like it. So I had an agent, and it wasn't published right away. It had some difficulty because people said it's such a serious subject and people don't want, you know, the the wars behind now and people don't really want to go there anymore. And and it was interesting because she then met a Spanish publisher, which was Planeta. And because Spanish is such a major language in the world, it's, you know, the seventh biggest publisher. And the editor from there read it, and she said, this is the most important book I've read in 10 years. She said, we have a policy. We never publish something before it's been published in its original language. And she said, I'm making an exception of this novel. And she published it. And then um, France took it, and it was nominated for the Prix Medici, which is, uh, I guess, the equivalent of the Booker Prize. It's a major literary um, prize, which was incredible. So from there, it went to um, other languages, Italian, uh, Catalan, and then it was published in English for the first time. And then it just kept going slowly by slowly, bit by bit, into another country. It's been translated now into um, over 20 languages, but it was a, a slow process. Every place that started to find the story more relevant would suddenly take it. And then, you know, I never wrote the book ever imagining it would become relevant any time during my lifetime. And it just kept going to another country and then to another country, and then it became a play, and then it became a film. So, you know, for me, it was a a journey that was incredible. I still remember when my agent had said, um, no one's taken it yet, start something else. And I was just devastated. I thought I had written something, you know, that had uh, meaning and that was engaging and had a plot. And, you know... It ended up going further than I ever would have imagined, but it had had such a difficult start. So, 
Yeah, it was really a, a very unique journey for me. So you kind of mentioned, you know, in hindsight, two examples where you kind of, you know, quit the paid gig to go write for yourself, and then you wrote this without pitching it first for several years. Do you see, like, when, when a story gets hold of you like that, do you kind of see it as an obligation to finish it? Yes, this one I would, because I've had sometimes ideas that I've tinkered with, and if I'm tinkering with it and it's not motivating me enough to spend several years with it, you know, I just don't go there. It has to be something where I have such a belief that I'm just burning to get this on paper, and um, I really want to just make sure that the story is done beginning to end, and then it's, a, it's almost a relief when finally it's there and someone else has it, and I know it's safe in someone else's hand. So, yes, I do feel that. How do you kind of nurture those? Do you just think about them? Do you, like, you know, write down little ideas and see if something holds? Like, when do you know to scrap something? If it, is it just a gut feeling? Yes. Um, it's often, so there's several processes. So, for example, there's the day-to-day writing. So sometimes I'll write something, and I'm convinced, especially towards the end of the day, I'll write something, and I'll think the last paragraph, goodness, is that beautiful and profound and then I get up the next morning fresh minds and somehow you forget and that's part of writing you have to forget what you've written the day before so you come to it as if you're someone else and you're not the one who wrote it and then some part that I didn't think was really good actually I said there's something in that and then the part that I thought was beautiful I just delete it and think I hope never anyone ever sees that that was just you know that was really um, corny part and just get rid of it. But then there's another part where you, I know where the story's going and things, but sometimes I'll just be doing something else, driving or uh, walking someplace, and I try to have a pen and paper always with me because suddenly a good idea will come on, and I'll quickly, either it can come as a sentence or it can come as an idea, and I think this would fit there and that would work. So as you're doing it, other things come about. And then there's the process when it's all done and you realize you read it as a whole. And I tend to, different writers um, work differently, but I tend to write more than I need to. And then after I trim away what doesn't need to be there, and sometimes I even take away something that in theory is good, but that takes away from the dramatic tension or the pace. It slows it down. So I'll take that part away too. That, that hurts the most because I know I put a lot of time to word it just the way it's worded, but I know that the book's better without it. So I, it just has to go. Do you have any advice to help people kind of see that, you know, big picture that when they need to cut the small things to make it a better project? Like how did you kind of come to that realization for some of these pieces? I'd say don't worry about cutting it. If it's got to go, you have to think of it as the whole. So you see the novel as a whole where it is, but you if something's got to go for the the book itself, what you do is you just take it out. If you loved it, you put it in a file to save for another time. Because sometimes if you have, let's say, a scene and it's very funny, but you just don't need it, you can actually do a lot of recycling, you know, and be a bit environmental about it. So I'll try to see if I can fit this another time. But um, it, it has to keep a pace all the time. And you have to, 
leave something alone sometimes for a couple months to realize it on your own. If you keep reading something over and over too fast, then it becomes like a song you know too well. You get tired of it. It doesn't have the same effect on you. And then you're not even reading the words anymore. The words become a bit of music, you know, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. So you can't do that. You have to stay fresh. So you have to write a draft, and then you have to go do something else, go do something with your friends, go do something with your family, leave it. At first, only leaving in a week is enough, but as the time goes, you know, on and you've written it, you know, several years, uh, let's say three years, you might have to leave it for two months and then you come to it and that's when even you don't need someone else to tell you, you'll see yourself, okay, this is very good, but actually that last sentence at the end, I didn't need that, that could go. And this paragraph, mm, we didn't need it, that could also go. Um, and then once that work's done and you submit it, you generally have someone else who gives you feedback. But today I would say it's better to do as much of that work as possible because publication has become harder today than it was and publishers don't have quite as much time to edit as they used to, let's say with my first book, where they would spend you know, eight months with you going back and forth, many drafts and putting extensive feedback. Those days are gone, um, at least you know, in my experience. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else, just the last question, anything else you want to say about the movie or your upcoming novel? Yeah, just about the, the movie. I found that one thing that isn't in the book, but that's in the movie, is the fact that um, in the book you have Hitler always in the conscious of the character, and he sees it. And in the movie... Um, Taika Waititi brings Hitler out, but the reason he did that is because it's the point of view of the child, and he wanted to explore how a child uh, can be indoctrinated by a figure like Hitler, and he wanted to bring a figure like that um, to, to a mere human being and to bring them down. So though that's not in the book, um, the way Taika brought it in, it's still explores what the book is trying to do and still gives across the same message. Thank you for tuning into this show. If this is your first time listening, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.